a Bible or a smartphone, something you'll be looking at the text with us this morning. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 10. As you are turning or typing to Hebrews 10, um, just a couple of quick announcements. You probably saw them on the slides earlier, but this Tuesday, so just in two days, we have our annual Redeemer Christmas party. Um, it's going to be a little different this year. We're hosting it at the bowling alley instead of here. Um, it'll be at 6. It's free. Um, your whole family is welcome. Invite friends, folks that you have been hoping would, would show up at Redeemer. It's a chance for them to, to see some friendly and familiar faces, hopefully. It's a potluck, and so if you are in a gospel community, your gospel community leader will be letting you know what, what to bring. If not, if you're not in one, just bring a dish to share, whether that's sweet or savory. And then um, just to go ahead and put on your radar, we will be doing a Christmas Eve service this year. I'm at 5.30 on Christmas Eve. So, um, All right, so Hebrews 10. Uh, we've been working our way through Hebrews over the last several months. Um, last week began chapter 10 and ended with just a few verses left. And, and really one of the things that Hebrews has done is it's, it's forcing its readers, um, is it's being written to a primarily um, former Jewish congregation of believers, to ask some big questions. It's asking them questions like, how do we approach God? Like, how is it that we would have access to God? Um, one of the questions it's asking, because there are a lot of warnings throughout Hebrews, is can we lose our salvation? It's a question that's going to be looked at in today's section. Um, it's going to ask us, what's our view of God? Like, how is it that you view Him and His character? And what does he look like when you think of him? And he's looking to encourage, to exhort the congregation, the audience that he's writing to, to not leave Jesus. And so he has been saying over and over again that Jesus is better and, and doing this comparison and this contrast. Um, he's, he's also teaching, right? He's gone into um, Melchizedek and these kind of um, a little bit mysterious Old Testament character and trying to teach something new to give them new information. Um, he's asking them to recall things from their past. And he's also giving some warnings. And I think sometimes we, we view warnings in Scripture a little bit strangely, like we're not sure what to do with them because it's like, well, are you trying to take my assurance away from me with this warning? And yet we know as, as, as parents or as an authority figure in, in a lot of different positions, warnings are an important part of what we do. That it's not always just teaching. It's not always just reminding. Sometimes it's like, hey, if you continue on the path that you are, there are dire consequences. And we can't always be about warning, right? But warning is a part of the thing that we do as, as parents and also in our faith. And so this morning... As you hear some of the hard language of the end of Hebrews 10, understand that the author is looking, to, has, is looking to warn those who are listening and to warn us as well. So let's pick up in verse 26. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment in a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace? 
For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. All right, so this section of scripture um, has led to a lot of struggle, a lot of confusion. A lot of angst um, as people wonder, okay, what does it look like if, if we continue to deliberately sin? Like, what's, what's going on here? Can we, can we lose our salvation? And it's important for us to tie verse 26 and what we're going to look at this morning back into last week. And if you remember last week, really what the, what the author is doing is he's reminding us that, that God, through Jesus' sacrifice as our high priest, has given us access back to the Father. That once and for all, that he has performed the last sacrifice. He has satisfied the wrath of God. He's set down because the work is done. And now has said, those who are mine come before the Father. Right? You have access back to him, the place that you belong And then he continued with, and because of this, because Jesus has accomplished what we could not accomplish on our own, right? He says, I want you now to draw near because you have access. And I want you to hold on tight to this confession. And then he ends it with, and I want you to stir one another up. I want you to remind one another, to encourage one another. I want you to continue to help each other lift your chins to see Jesus, to see the potential traps in life. I want you to love one another to good works. And he says, I want you to do this in verse 25, all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so he says, look, it's going to get harder. And we know that the story ends with victory, but it's going to get harder, not easier. And so as the day, as as the return of Jesus comes closer... Right? You're going to need each other more. And then he picks up in verse 26, 4. And so remember, he's writing saying, here's the things I want you to do because Jesus has secured it for you. But if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Listen, uh, we're just going to go ahead and cut to the chase here. He is not teaching that you can lose your salvation. That's not where he's going to go with this. And how, how do we know that? If you look even in verse 14 of chapter 10, just up a little bit, he says this, For by a single offering, meaning the, the, the offering of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so he's saying, we are in a process of being sanctified. You will continue to sin some. You're not perfect upon salvation, right? So we are being sanctified, and he has done this. And if you look back at Hebrews 3, also verse 14, you'll be reminded 
of this key kind of linchpin verse in the whole book where he writes, For we have come to share in Christ, meaning that we have salvation, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And so one of the key components of what the author is saying is this, is that perseverance, endurance is the mark of a believer. Right, that if we continue to walk with Jesus, that we know that we've been rescued, that we have Jesus. And so he is warning those who are listening. Hey, if, if you walk away from Jesus, you're not losing your salvation. You just never had salvation. All right? And yet one of the things we're going to talk about is sometimes we backslide for a little while. And backsliding and apostasy, which is leaving what you said you once believed can look the same for a really long time. Except in one, it will come back to faith and trust and belief and repentance. In the other, it leads to judgment. And so he's writing to a church, to a group of believers, saying, listen, these first steps away from Jesus could be you just having a hard season and sinning and struggling a little bit, or it could be you on the path of of walking away from where your hope was going to be. And so we need to be careful in these moments. We need to be wise in these moments. We need to continue together, together, to, to stir one another up. In Mark 3, it refers to the, the, like the unforgivable, the unpardonable sin. And what we learned that that is, is it's, it's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is this, it's never believing. It's never having faith. And, and the only sin that is not going to be forgiven is dying without belief. Any other sin that you have committed, right? The cross of Jesus, his sacrifice on your behalf is enough to atone for it, to make it right. You cannot out the grace of God in the rescue of Jesus. So the only sin that you will not be forgiven for is if you die in unbelief. That is the unpardonable sin, is that you died not trusting that Jesus was sufficient or enough for you. And so, there are folks in every church, there have been folks in in every church now that have ever been, that ever will be, who are currently being affected and influenced by Christians, right? And so for a little while, temporarily, they look and talk and act and sound like a Christian. And they may even have some um, affirming knowledge of Jesus, and yet they haven't tasted and seen that the Lord was good. They haven't believed Right? They have not been yet rescued. And so when circumstances get difficult or hard, or when the, the cares of this world begin to, to remind them, they walk away. We've seen this in the families of, of believing parents whose kids, for a period of time as they're growing, look like believers because they're being influenced by mom and dad and they're in church. And yet salvation has not yet come. And so they, at some point, flee and run away. We see it in the lives of those who all of a sudden some hard circumstances comes in their life through death or loss, right? Through not getting what their hearts longed for. And like, I'm not sure that Jesus is enough, right? This is what the author of Hebrews is writing to and about of saying, don't leave Jesus. In Mark 3, we saw the the unforgivable sin. If you just look in Mark 4, the very next chapter, it talks about the four soils, right? That the gospel is heard and often responded to. But some, it comes up quick, and then it burns out. Others, is choked out. Some ignore it completely. The only one that's lasting is the fourth one. 
in which it is planted and it's rooted and it grows up and it remains. The other, the other, number two and number three look like salvation for a while, but they're not. And we don't get to judge the hearts of those, right? Like we don't know. And so we don't say, well, all right, we're not going to baptize you for at least a decade, right? We're going to see if you really mean this, right? That we take confession of faith and we pursue and we believe and we trust. And yet what the author is reminding us over and over again is perseverance, endurance will be the mark of a true believer. And so what is happening here is he's warning them, if you reject the truth with your behavior, right, if you are stomping on and disrespecting, listen to the language he uses here. Um, In verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? It's just this idea of like disrespect, Right, that we know, like, we don't like people even walking or stepping on a book, right? Even a, a little kid, you're like, oh, don't step on the book, right? Because there's just something disrespectful about it. And he's giving this imagery of you are like stomping on and disrespecting the Son of God. That you see him as not sufficient, as not necessary, I'm not worthy of respect. He continues in verse 29, and you have profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. This word profaned is really, it's, it's, he's saying you've made it common. He's saying it's, not, it's nothing big about Jesus' sacrifice. It's not sufficient. It's not enough. It's not even a big deal. He says, or he continues, and has outraged the spirit of grace. Right? This idea that God has given us mercy and grace, these things which we cannot deserve, that we do not earn, that we cannot have on our own. He's like, God has, in his mercy, has offered grace. And you're like, eh, I don't need it. I don't want it. And you disrespect Jesus, and you stomp, and you trample, and your behavior says it's not enough, it's not sufficient, and I reject him. Verse 25, we need to keep coming back here. He says, I don't want you to neglect to meet together as is the habit of some but encourage one another. So here's what he's saying. Some of you who are claiming Jesus currently are beginning to neglect gathering together. And what's going to happen is, is you're going to walk away from Jesus. And what it's going to reveal is this, is that you never had him. You never knew him. But this is the place of hope. And this is the place of truth. And if you're going to be rescued, it's going to be here. And you're going to walk away and say, Jesus' death was common. It wasn't significant. He's not enough. He's not sufficient. And my life is going to show you that I don't believe and trust that Jesus is this. And so he tells them, listen, you know that in the law, in verse 28, anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy. So he's quoting from Deuteronomy 17. And he's saying, look, if, if, if there's witnesses against you that you have intentionally sinned against the law, right, you're stoned, you're killed. And he's like, so how much more... Are you going to be judged if you have experienced, seen the grace of Jesus? If you've seen these things and seen and heard the mercy that God has offered through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. There are only two paths. He's like, you either get access to the Father once and for all and you are secure in His hand. Or you will get judgment. There is no other way. There are only two paths. You will stand before God someday. 
And you'll either stand with Jesus having perfected you, covered you with his righteousness and his perfection, or you will stand alone before a God who is ready to judge. And so he continues this then and begins to show um, the character of God, a view that maybe some of us don't have um, come, come to our mind and our recollection quickly. And he says this, how much more work, how much in verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think? And then in verse 30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He's quoting now from Deuteronomy 32, this last kind of song of Moses over the people as he's ministering to them before the end of his life. And he's reminding them of the the character of God that is good and also the character of God that brings wrath and judgment upon sin. If you remember earlier this year, we looked at Amos. And one of the lines in Amos is this, is prepare to meet your God. And that's not a coffee mug verse. That's a trembling, fearful verse that we are going to stand before a living God who abhors sin, who is utterly righteous and perfect. And so you're either going to stand there with Jesus as your advocate, your high priest, who has been praying on your behalf, who has died on your behalf, who has been raised on your behalf to make you a son and daughter of the king, or you will stand there prepared to meet your God alone with only your sin and your shame before you. And he says, and you will be judged. He continues, it is a fearful thing. To fall into the hands of the living God. Verse 27. A fearful expectation of judgment. And a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And so what he's telling them is this. is There is no other sacrifice than Jesus. And so if if you think I can ignore Jesus and I'll find some other way. He's like there is no other sacrifice. There is no other way. This is it. And so are you going to trust and follow and lean into Jesus? Or are you going to walk away into judgment? So I think for most of us, we, based on your upbringing or your church experience, um, you, you have probably a view of God. And for some of you, it is the access that we see in Hebrews, right? That you just like... You know, you're kicking in the saloon doors and running in and you're like, all right, God, I'm here. I'm yours. And, and, and there's, there's, if we're not careful, almost a flippancy to that. And for others of you, you're thinking, no, this is my view of God. He's an angry God looking to devour and to destroy. And yet what Scripture says, right, is that God has given grace and mercy and access. But if we forget... If we, if we forget the fact that there is also judgment and consumption to his adversaries, then we don't see the access as, as worthwhile, as significant, as sufficient. And he's saying, this is what you have, except Jesus interceded on your behalf, and now you get access. And God is saying, come in and sit with me. Call me Abba, Father. Walk with me. We need to see this comparison and contrast and know that God is both of these. And so he's telling them, remember, you know this. You've heard God say that he will judge. He then continues. Verse 32. 
So he's given them this warning. And then he says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. And so he's warned them and he's saying, listen, there's some of you here that right now are faking. Or some of you here that really don't trust Jesus and you're influenced by other things. And he's like, and you're going to be tempted to walk away. Be warned. There is no other sacrifice. There is no other hope. It's Jesus or it's nothing. And so he's encouraging them. But then he continues in verse 32. But recall the former days. So we know that this church has been around for a little while. That they've been believers for a while. And he says, remember, after you were enlightened, you were saved. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings. And so he's talking about a particular incident. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Sometimes you were partners with those so treated. And you had compassion on those in prison. Right? So he's describing this scene. He's like... So listen, right now you're tempted because things are a little bit difficult to walk away from Jesus. But don't you recall, church? Don't you recall this has happened before and you didn't leave? You stayed in and you endured and you persevered and you saw that Jesus was sufficient. He's wanting them to put some effort into recalling how they have lingered with Jesus for a while. He's encouraging. He's saying, you've already done what I'm asking you to do before. Continue. It's why the author has continued to tell us, don't drift. Right? Don't walk away. He's spurring them on. He's, he's encouraging them to, to linger and to hold on tight to Jesus. It's a reminder of why we need to meet together. That we need to be able to remind and to encourage and to warn one another, I see a pitfall in your life. I see a trap coming. Wait, you seem to be falling in love with this thing that's going to take you away from Jesus, not towards him. Right? And so how do we stir one, another's, uh, stir one another's affection for Jesus? How do we warn one another if we're not together in knowing one another? That we would help one another be reminded of the treasure, the beauty, and the greatness of Jesus and the deceitfulness of sin and the lives that surround us. Because next, would we not just move past verse 34 too quickly? For you had compassion on those in prison. And listen to this. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Since that you knew yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Listen, it doesn't say they put up with the plundering of their property. Right? They didn't fight back when their property was plundered. That they joyfully accepted. Like, really? Like, you're joyfully accepting people coming in and taking what is yours. How is this possible? And it's because, in verse 32, they have been enlightened, right? That they have come to faith in Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we're reminded of this as you think of this word, enlightened. But you, verse 9, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So he's saying, you were walking in darkness, groping about, and then the light came and you have seen Jesus rightly and clearly. And so now you have seen the plundering of your property as something that you can joyfully accept because that's not where your hope is. That's not where your peace is. That's not where your satisfaction is. And he says, church, you're considering walk away from Jesus. Now you've already done the hard thing. You've already stuck with it when your property was plundered and you were thrown in prison and you were publicly um, reproached and brought about with affliction. 
Like, you've done this. Don't leave him now. Endure. Stay with him. Stay with him. We have a a friend who has been studying the persecuted church for like 30 years. And he was telling Carmen and I a story one time about this was in the years ago um, when, when things were being cracked down a little harder in Russia. And a father who knew that he was being arrested that morning for, for, for preaching, for faith, for belief in Jesus, and he was going to be hauled off that morning. And so knowing they're coming, he sits his children, young children, down in his lap in his kitchen with his wife there, and he says, look, I'm, I'm going to prison. Um, I don't know when I'm going to get out. I don't know if I'll ever get out. But I want you to know that if I hear in prison that you too end up in prison because of your belief in Jesus... I'll be the proudest father there ever has been. Right? Like we, like that doesn't feel real. Right? Like that story is like, yeah, that feels a little too far-fetched, too far removed. But that story should land in the same way that they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. It should feel crazy. Like it doesn't make sense unless you have seen that Jesus is enough. That he is sufficient. Unless we've been reminded that this is not our home. And that putting down too deep of roots makes us love this more than Jesus. And that we are headed somewhere. And if we can see rightly and clearly that Jesus is enough, that he is sufficient, then we can begin to do things that the world would call crazy. So why is it that someone would give up their home, their comfort, and move to a far-off place where people don't love Jesus to tell them about Jesus? It's because they've seen that there's a greater reward and that Jesus is sufficient and that this life doesn't have all that we need, but Jesus does. Why would we, right? Why would you have folks who turn down jobs with more money, right? Because they've seen that Jesus is their reward. Why would you have folks who, who live to serve and to pour themselves out in really difficult jobs, whether it's, right, whether it's teaching or nonprofit work or ministry? I mean, so many things. Like, why would they choose to pour themselves out and, and have themselves abused in these difficult things? Because they've seen that Jesus is the better reward. That there's more going on here. Why would any of you choose to live in community if it wasn't that you saw that Jesus was enough? Because otherwise we would surround ourselves with the people most like us, who most make us happy, who are most easy to be around, and not around those who are stirring us up, right? To good and to hard things. Who are reminding us of our sin. Who are calling us to account. Who are saying, are you see, do you see the trap you're about to walk into? Right? Because that makes life harder. But it makes life better. So why would we do these things? It's because we have been enlightened to see the glory of God. To see the reality that this world is not our home. And its reality is not the greatest reality. But the spiritual world is. It's why Paul in prison would say, do what you must. Kill me? I'll go be with Jesus. Let me out. I'm going to go plant churches. Keep me here. I'm going to win your guards. Right? I'm going to tell them about Jesus. What, what are you going to do? You can't touch me because Jesus has me. And whether my life is short or long, it is for him. And this world doesn't have me. Do we see Jesus this way? He, he continues. He's like, in verse 36... Sorry, verse 35. Therefore, church, 
Don't throw away your confidence. That's a great reward. For when you have need of endurance, for you have need of endurance so that you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Verse 37, he quotes from Habakkuk. Um, and, and he says, for yet for a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. He's reminding them that for a long time, the people of God have been trusting that God will deliver on his promises. That he will come and do what he says. He's quoting also from Isaiah here, reminding them that they have longed for God to intervene against evil. That he would send the promised deliverer. He's like, and he's done that. And so if he's done that, he's going to see the other promises through. He's going to come for us and rescue us. And Jesus is enough. So cling to this. Hold on. Endure. Treasure. And he says, look, if you have this reward, then it will allow you to fight temptation. Listen, there, I don't know what your guilty pleasure is when it comes to food. Right? But there, when you're hungry and you're standing in line at the checkout, right? Like they put guilty pleasures all around you. Right? Or as you're driving home late at night after work, the things that are still open are like guilty pleasure food, right? And so when you're hungry, it's really hard to not say, I just need to grab some poppers real quick, you know? But when you know that a meal is being prepared at home, that's your favorite, right? Carmen's home making steak and risotto or doing like this like great meal. It's not hard to drive by junk because I know what I've got when I get home. If, I, if I'm hungry and I don't know what's coming at home, it's way easier to swing in and, and grab a bag of chips and, you know, a 68-ounce drink and to do all these things, right? He's saying, if you see Jesus, if you see the reward that's coming for you, you're going to be able to na- navigate life in a way that allows you to avoid some sin and some struggle. Because you're seeing, you, th- you think that's appealing to me? Do you know what's coming? I want that, not this. But church, if we can't see Jesus this way, if we don't see the reward this way, then we are constantly being tricked and trapped into sin, into, into savoring things that weren't meant to satisfy us. And so, he's reminding them, recall that you have been faithful in this before. In Acts 5, we're reminded that the apostles, after they were humiliated and beaten in front of the authorities, they went away rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to receive shame on behalf of Jesus' name. Right? Like They're like, we're glad that we get to do what Jesus has, has had happen. In, in Luke 6, we hear Jesus even say this. In verse 22, Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and when they revile you, and when they spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Jesus himself says, look, it's not always going to be right, good, and easy. But the reward is better than anything you're going to face. Better than anything you're going to face. And if we can remember that, if we can recall that, if we can use one another to be reminded of that, no, 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 rejoice, recall, remember, look, then we can move through this life to the place where we belong together, getting to the rest and the promised land that has been offered to us. In, in Hebrews six nineteen. 
passage we've already seen, Jesus is referred to as our anchor. That he roots us, he anchors us despite the storms and circumstances of our life. So church, make no mistake, I know there are storms and there are circumstances. That there is loss and there is death and there is suffering and there is tragedy and there are unfulfilled desires and purposes and there are the loss of, of those close to us and there is infertility and there are miscarriages and there is cancer and there is horrific things in this world. And yet Jesus says, I will anchor you. That as you are anchored and the storms of life blow, you're not going anywhere, you're not drifting, you're going to stay even as they... They batter you. Like if you'll see that I'm the one who's anchoring your soul and I'm taking you to where you belong. So we look to Him. We look to Him. Because He's being held up. And so the author now will finish verse 39. So he starts this passage with a warning of like, hey, it's like he's calling into question their assurance of faith. But listen to how he ends it. Verse 39. He's writing to the same people, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. He's saying, I've warned you, this can happen, but that's not who we are, right? It's almost like a brave heart type speech here, right? That's not who we are, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls because we are anchored in Christ. So what he's saying is this, those who need to take heed of the warning, take heed of the warning. You can be fooled. But for the, those of you who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, who have been brought into his marvelous light and have been enlightened, would you rest well? He will hold you and he will not let go. And he will take you to where he's promised and you will be with the Father forever and not because of your ability to keep it, because he has called you his. Endure. Endure. And so this is what chapter 10 did. He says this. Jesus has given us access through his sacrifice. You will either accept it and get access to the Father, or you will reject it and you will get judgment. And in the meantime, we need one another to persevere, to get back to where we belong, which was with the Father forever. Church, would we, during this season of Advent, as the Lees and the Garzones have talked about hope and about peace, You have hope, not because you have accomplished something, but because Jesus has accomplished it for you. And that you can have peace despite what the world throws at you, because Jesus has put you at peace with the Father. Would we see the fact that Jesus has come, and that he's coming again as the good news that it is? And would it allow us to endure? Let's pray. Father, we humbly say thank you. God, would we not take for granted that you have put us at peace, that you've given us hope? God, would we not be quick to walk away? And so, Father, this morning, for those who are struggling with this, God, would you give assurance to those who um, have trusted you, who are depending upon you, God, if, if sin is blinding and, and muddy in the waters, Lord, would they confess that, repent of it, knowing that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance, and that in you there is grace that we can't outsin. Father, for those in the room, God, who 
have pretended or maybe are just realizing now they've been influenced by the church, but they've never trusted or seen you as sufficient, God, would you call them? Would you you make them a son, a daughter of the king? And Father, would we then grab arms together and be the church for one another and for a world that's in desperate need of hope? God, do what only you can do now in stirring our hearts and our affection for you. Taking away blindness and numbness and indifference. God, when we see you It's the greatness, the beauty, and the treasure that you are. In Jesus' name, amen.